All right, as promised, this is side B of the podcast or just the second recording of it. And uh, I used my creative intro earlier for the first part, so if you missed it, go back and listen to part one of the podcast with my amazing intro uh, via Herbie the Love Bug, episode 53. But we have part two now, as promised. Dave King, live from U.S. Airways Center, Al McCoy Media Room, and Amin El Hassan from ESPN.com via the same exact media room, but a different phone call. How are you guys doing here tonight after a tough son's loss? By the magic of telephony, we are here, we are alive, and we're cold up in the corner so that we can get a nice, quiet vibe going while everyone else works in the, in the room next door. Yep, uh, definitely the Clippers game just ended a little while ago. We just, I just went through a dejected locker room for the Sun, and uh, uh, they were a little bit disappointed that they let that game slip away from them. So uh, thanks for coming on, Amin. And the first thing I want to do is ask you a question about the Clippers game. Uh, we were talking before we got on the phone about how the Suns might have a tough time beating the better teams in the West. And uh, uh, you talked about just the makeup of the team and, and how likely they are to be able to make the playoffs. Well, first of all, I'll point out that the people on Twitter really don't like when you use a question that starts to talk about. <laughs> it seems to be a big pet people on Twitter. I don't know why, but again, I'm new to this media thing, so maybe some of these jokes are flying over my head. Um, as far as the sun, so all season long, and I, even if I recall correctly, we went to the Suns training camp scrimmage together up in Flagstaff, and I remember I talked about it in the car. I said, this team is going to be scrappy, they're going to play hard, they're going to probably lose a lot of games. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> So they, they played very well up to this point, but a lot of that has been predicated on uh, health and the ability to consistently play at a high level of energy. And at some point, the lack of depth of talent, I would say, is going to come back to bite them. And that, we're seeing that now. You know, obviously, Bledsoe got hurt. They've been doing well to stay about around 500 since his injury. 16 and 14. Yeah, so, you know. 16 and 14. R- roughly, roughly 500. Uh, but now you hear, you know, Plumlee's got hurt, and then Barbosa broke his hand today. I don't know if this is breaking news at this point, but um, so you know, you're starting to cut into the depth of the team, and now you're relying on a minutes from guys like Sally Randolph, which just got here a couple of days ago. Uh, if Smith has had to play a, a large amount of minutes, um, and uh, even the guys that were playing and playing well, they're asking them to do things that are outside their comfort zone. So that's Gerald Green having to, to ISO, whether that's TJ Tucker post ups. These are things that should not be happening in a regular playoff level offense. And now you're asking these guys to do that. So it just puts an overall strain on the team and on uh, to maintain this level of excellence. Uh, especially when you have teams that are running up on the Vermont like Memphis. Uh, like the Mavericks, we've them in the standings as of tonight. Uh, to to jump in there, and uh, I just talked for a ton with Nate, so I'm going to try and be as quiet as I can on this one, but I, I had posed the question in the roundtable discussion that we had on Brightside. It was just kind of a throw-in bonus question of, was this team, in hindsight, poorly constructed? And I don't mean to criticize McDonough, the success, or the roster as a whole, but when you look at the playmaking aspect of it, when Eric Bledsoe goes down... 
the entire burden falls on Goran Dragic. He's, you know, they're 16 and 14 without Eric Bledsoe, so he's done a very phenomenal job. But when you look at it from a playmaking standpoint, team assists, uh, you know, guys being able to create shots for themselves and others, from that perspective, Amin, as a neutral third party away from the Brightside website, is this team poorly constructed when it comes to offensive playmaking when you consider one guy goes down and then the team is virtually 500? I'm going to say no for two reasons. Uh, reason one is I don't think you plan on Bledsoe getting hurt, right? You know, the, 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 uh, these, both of these guys are healthy. Like we expect them to be as young, relatively healthy players who do not have a history of injury. Then I think it's a reasonable expectation that they're going to be around. And it just so happened he had a freak injury and it didn't work out that way. The other thing is, and Dave and I were speaking about this, uh, off, off the, off the record, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. Um, this team wasn't expected to be competing for a playoff berth. So, if you, on October first, you're you're uh, building a roster that's supposed to be competitive and gritty and build a culture of winning and all these things, but not necessarily competing for a playoff berth. You can't, you know, four months later, say, "Oh man, we, we messed up in the construction of the team because that wasn't the goal." This is kind of a side effect of what they were trying to get in terms of intangible attributes of the team. Yeah, actually, the Suns have actually uh, done everything they wanted to do this year. It's just that the things they said they wanted to do this year have been, um, in terms of expectations, wildly successful. Uh, they've actually turned into wins. They wanted to build a winning culture. They wanted to build a culture of, of success on the team. And they actually accomplished that uh, with, with the team that they have that was not built to be a playoff contender. And so if the Suns can stay strong and actually make the playoffs, that's just compelling. At this point, they've done, I would call this a winning season already, um, no matter what happens going on. Uh, you've got the issue of having a middling draft pick at the end, but they've got other draft picks, and they can take that asset, cast space. You've got your head on, you can see. So, yeah, poorly constructed to be a contender, sure. But that wasn't the design. Yeah, and well, I I think those are all fair. I think it means things there. Uh, your points were definitely fair points in consideration of these losses are kind of a casualty or a result of overachievement. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, these points are fair, but mine weren't. No, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you and saying <laughs> that I agree with your points there because I would say, no, I agree with you because when you look at the, the losses as of late and the kind of like maybe plateauing, falling down to earth, as I've been saying lately, a lot of it might just be a casualty of overachievement. The team wasn't expected to win a lot of games. They've been winning. Bledsoe goes down. So it's a result of it. I just I felt it was a fair question because the team is last in the NBA in assists. They're one of the very few teams that are actually above 500 that feature two or less guys that average 2.5 assists or more. Just looking into the numbers, it's just it's not a very good team-oriented offense playmaking team. They really heavily rely on two guys. Yeah. Uh, that's true, and they weren't. Uh, they can't go into the season expecting to rely on those guys to see who could win the battle. But they've what they've actually proven is that there's potential for these guys to play well together for years. Yeah, uh, Bledsoe and Dragic, and I think that was a nice uh, find for the season, if nothing else. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. And what I wanted to bring in on for the most part was the Sloan Analytics Conference that just happened just last weekend. I never had a chance to go to that, and uh, I think it'd be really fun. I'm a geek on that kind of stuff, um, and Amin has talked about what he could have done in prior years, so I think this is your first year going. Can you uh, give us a quick overview of your experience? 
Absolutely. It was my first year going, um, and from what I understand, it's different now than it was in the earlier stages because there are more people, there's more exposure. But also the subject matter of the panels, of the papers, of the research, um, I guess in earlier years it was all about how can we get analytics more mainstream. And now the kind of the revolution has already happened. And then it's is mainstream, and now we're asking and looking at more nuanced questions, trying to, and trying to answer more nuanced questions than just the, the, the standards here. So within that context, um, it was really interesting, because uh, sometimes there are things that are very apparent as far as how important this is and how useful it is, and sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes it's kind of stuff that... It takes a while for you to, to figure out whether this is useful or not. Um, and then another thing also is you, uh, you have these smaller panels that are kind of these nuggets of information based on the papers. Then you got the bigger panels that are really just another version of talking head. So we got to hear Adam Silver and Malcolm Gladwell go at it. And that was kind of fun from two guys that have very different perspectives. We got to hear from... Uh, Stan Van Gundy and Daryl Morey and Warriors GM Bal Meyer. And a bunch of different panels with different voices, interesting voices. Uh, but I think the real value comes from some of those papers, some of those smaller panels, and then some of the software stuff that we've seen uh, come about, you know, uh, being exhibited actually on site. It's not necessarily they don't have a, an actual uh, a talk or anything, but these people are there. There are all these types of minds coming with uh, analytical devices and tools and uh, they're pitching them to teams and pitching them to media people, and just hearing their ideas and seeing their thoughts was really, uh, really educational. All right, uh, so I have a question. Uh, I mean, um, it took them a while, everybody a while, to get the analytics to be mainstream in front offices, and now you're hearing pretty much every front office has an analytics group and is using the sport view, obviously, this year. Um, has the analytics data proven to make teams more effective to the point that coaches are convinced that, uh, that that's the way to go. I know some coaches are holdouts. Uh, some very famous ones like Lionel Holmes and stuff like that are real holdouts on analytics are not the way to go. But generally, is there a consensus that the analytics have taken hold and proven themselves? Yeah, I, I wouldn't even say that there are holdouts as far as guys to outright say analytics don't work. I think, you know, Sam Van Gundy said it best. He said, we all use analytics. The difference is i got to know where my numbers are coming from. So we use numbers in Orlando, but there's a number that my guys collected and tabulated, and those are the numbers that go off of that, as opposed to synergy where I'm relying on this army of loggers from all across the nation who I don't know. I don't know how they define things. I don't know if they're using the same kind of uh, interpretations of events that we use as my staff. So uh, I think that's, that's a very important distinction. Um, but even beyond that, I think for the most part, I think we all agree threes are better than twos, layups are better than mid-range jumpers, hits the free throw line, corner threes are, are great. I think that's, that's kind of, universally accepted, and every team in the league, you either see them offensively trying to do those things or defensively try to prevent those things, and, you know, the best of all the world, obviously, other teams that can do both. They can get those shots and, and prevent those shots. But so how, does the, so how does a team like the Wizards 
get away with pushing for the playoffs, and yet they lead the league in mid-range shots, and they've got the 23rd-ranked field goal shooting percentage from mid-range shots. I mean, they don't even prove they can make them, yet they keep trying. I, I think I, I, I don't want to attribute Paul Clay to people, but I think Kyle Weah actually wrote a nice little thing about that. And uh, if you look at the Wizards' shots at, at uh, different the, the, the good areas, right, layups in corner three, they are above average at all of those. Mm-hmm. They're actually better than most other teams in the league at doing those things. It just so happens that the one thing that you shouldn't be doing is where they get a lot of shots from, and they are below average at the shots. And the issue, I guess, is what Randy Whitman is trying to say is, which is what uh, Coach Van Gundy also made a point during the conference is, look, it's nice to say I want three corner threes and layups and free throws, but you got to remember the guy on the other end, he's got that same information, and he's trying to stop him from getting those. So you don't get to pick and choose it, like at the buffet. I'll have some of the, the salad and maybe a couple of these uh, chicken wings over here. You kind of have to take what you can get. Now, the argument against the Wizards is they are settling. So, Within that context of taking what you can get, you can still probably get a higher share of those juicier shots. And maybe the Wizards are, are not as diligent at, you know, maybe they're just accepting these wide open long twos, or, or it's easy long twos, I should say. I won't call them wide open, but it's easier to get long twos than uh, fighting for better shots. So, what does that say about the Phoenix Suns coaching staff in that, um, as rookies in the league, and with a, uh, an under-talented team, yes, the Suns are talented, but they're under-talented compared to the best teams in the league. Um, yet they are second or third now in three-point attempt rate, and uh, they really have a great distribution of taking very few controlled mid-range shots from only a handful of guys. And all the rats are threes and layups and, and putbacks and, and fast breaks. Well, I think the two things that work. One, I think, is when you're a young coach, like Warner said, and, and you know, obviously he's not a young man, but he's young in the coaching game in the terms of his first head coaching now. I and mean, even as an assistant, uh, he wasn't a full-time assistant. People forget this. He wasn't a full-time assistant in Utah until Jerry Sloan left. Before that, he was kind of a consultant. He actually lived here in Phoenix, and he'd fly out a couple of times and work with guys. So I think there's a, a very interesting, important distinction that he doesn't have, um, he's not like these lifers who have 10, 15, 20 years of working under a coach or other coaches, and if it stops his philosophy, this is how we're going to do it. So if you look at, like, the Brian Shaw, the Jim Clemens of the world, they came up with the triangle, they believe in the triangle, and, and that's, that's their philosophy. Or, you know, maybe guys like uh, maybe Alan Gentry, after working with Mike D'Antoni, you know, he, he's got uh, seven seconds or less kind of offense. For a quarterback, you really don't have a philosophy, right? Maybe you got a couple of things that Ty was running based on what Jerry Sloan ran, but eh, you know, it's not like he's not ingrained in it. So I think that kind of works in his advantage as far as being open to suggestions, whether that's from the front office or from his assistants, which is the second part of my uh, my answer. He's relatively inexperienced, but his his assistants aren't, right? So Kenny Gass has been around a lot. Jerry uh, Cece has been around the block. Uh, Longobardi has been around the block. So all these guys have a wealth of experience that they bring to the table. And at the same time, they're assistants, so, you know, in their in their capacity, they offer suggestions, and Jeff is going to take what's best, and he'll also take some suggestions from the guys up top. 
And that kind of makes them very nice and flexible and able to create an offensive system that, that and defensive system that works to the strength of their personnel. Okay, let's go back to the conference. Um, at the at the phone conference last weekend, is there one thing, if you had to pick one thing that jumped out at you that was a wow moment for you that you didn't know going in, uh, that might change your thinking on basketball or something with regard to the game? In the future, what would that be? Um, well, not to toot my own horn, but you know, I, I I'm not friend of analytics, so none of this stuff is brand new to I'm having some epiphany. Uh, but there were two things that I thought, I, two takeaways that I really uh, valued from this conference. One was the panel on rebounding, and uh, the researchers there were able to isolate and kind of define the three different stages of rebounding which is one positioning, just being in the right place at the right time at the moment the shot is taken. Uh, two would be uh, the um, improvement of position. So the ball bounces and it starts going somewhere else from where I am, and i got to get there. And the third stage is the actual grabbing of the rebound, which I would describe as like the Jerry Seinfeld quote, anyone can take a reservation. Let's <laughs> be holding the reservation. <laughs> That's important. So, um, in that context, uh, they were able to look at the guys in the league who rebound really well as a function of just being at the right place at the right time. So, if I'm Roy Hibbert, I don't move that far from the rim. Most of the rebounds come from the rim. That's how I'm getting my rebound. Versus guys who are improving their positioning throughout the life cycle of this rebound as the shot goes up and it bounces and everything. And so we can look at guys who are rebounding above what their expected value of a rebound would be had they just stood still. And, and did they point out some names? They did, surprising names. They did. And, and the surprising thing was a lot of the names were star players. So if you looked at the list, a lot of them were LeBron James, Kevin Durant, uh, read Paul George, yes, at, at improving their, their expected value of the rebound. And the researchers didn't have any answers, but we could speculate. One of the things I speculate is a lot of times teammates will defer to a team to a star. Let them take the reason that the team had to that. Yeah. So Shea will box out and let LeBron swoop in and grab the reason. Um, and that's just my speculation on that thing. But there were also some other names that were pretty interesting. Lance Stevenson was on that list. Um, Al Farouk was on that list. And so um, they actually had multiple lists for guys who were good at from position, guys who were good at improving their position, guys that were good at just the capture of, of said rebound. Um, and, and it gets a lot more detail. They break down the court into areas and to show how many guys can cordon off an area of the court as their own. Um, so, so let's put this into a little bit of a son's perspective. Right. Um, You've got Miles Plumley, who, despite his recent downturn, um, is still ranked 19th in the NBA in rebound rate mm-hmm. uh, among forwards and centers. Where is he good, and where is he not good according to? Well, I, having not seen that specific uh, numbers from that study, I don't know exactly, but I would say he was, to me he's a rebounder. Now his problem is um, he's a, a slight build. So while his overall numbers look good, there's also an element of, well, somebody has to grab these defensive rebounds for the Suns, right? 
And he's a good rebounder, but it's not like he, you know, he's protecting the defensive glass in a way that puts the Suns among the league leaders in the defensive rebounding. And at the same time, he has a pension of getting eaten up by bigger, stronger opponents. So that's one of those ones where, you know, is, is he really late rebounder or is he a good rebounder benefiting from a lack of uh, competition? Exactly. Uh, and that, that's one of those things you got to look at. Um, offensively, obviously, I think he's a tremendous rebounder. You usually see that with high-energy guys, like high-energy, athletic, long. He can get to the ball in ways that, uh, you know, most guys his size don't move that quickly and are not able to uh, corral offensive rebounds that easily. All right. Last question on the Sloan Conference, because we got to get going. I think these guys want to close up here a little bit. Uh <laughs> They're fun. Now you're saying they're fun. They're cool. Well, yeah. Um, but anyway, last question on the phone conference. What about, or just analytics in general? What about analytics? The whole movement has been the most um, unfulfilled or disappointing to you. Oh wow, that's a good one. The most unfulfilling is that several years in, there are still a lot of very smart analytics people. I just don't get that sometimes the way the message is crafted can be more important than the message itself. And the arrogance with, with some people, obviously not all, but there are some people that carry themselves with an arrogance that has a way of turning off uh, the old school guys. Mm-hmm. So to me, I've always looked at it like, what's the point of our depth? whether I'm an analyst guy or a scout or whatever. What's the point? The point is, at the end of the day, I want my team to make the right decision. So, me shoving it down someone's throat in the most snarky, condescending way, you know, you might say, well, all that matters is the information, but that's not true. All that matters is the result. I'm trying to influence the behavior from my bosses or whoever. And in order to influence that behavior, I've got to communicate it in such a way where they are willing to accept and absorb it. Now, obviously, they have to, there's some burden on them as well. But I think a lot of, or there's a segment of analytics people that don't get the burden that falls on themselves to do a better job of communicating something. And also, um, being open to listening to the rebuttal and and rethinking, well, maybe what I just said isn't infallible. So I'll give you an example. Uh, John Ezekowitz, who was a, uh, he worked in the analytics department here on a couple of seasons before leaving. Uh, he actually was the author of one of the better received papers, which is about, uh, the hot hand. And how yeah. in the analytics community, they used to think that the hot hand doesn't exist and it's just a myth that us stupid basketball people think about, but it's not really real. It's just random strings of, Makes or misses, and uh, John went back and controlled for the difficulty of the shot. So what he said is, you know, usually when a player has a high hand, the shot selection gets worse. Mm-hmm. Most notably, uh, embodied in what we call the heat check. I'm going to pull up from 35 feet wide because I'm feeling it because I hit three shots in a row. And what John went and found is when you control for this, there is actually, uh, although it's not as large as perhaps NBA people think. There is a definite evidence of the hot hand in in basketball. That, that if you make two or three shots, there's a greater likelihood 
that you will make the next additional shot. Um, and I think that was great because it represents someone taking a study that was literally 30 years old and had almost become set in stone in the analytics community that this is what we believe in. That's why people are stupid because they still believe in this thing, just like when they say there's no such thing as clutch. And this analytics guy, Don, uh, took it and said, well, hold on, there might be some merit to this based on some uh, methodology issues in the earlier studies, and he found something true. That's uh, an exception and not the rule. Most of the time, the study comes out, and we just accept it. That's it. You know, no one, no one wants to go on uh, and, and further dig or, or accept the rebuttals from the basketball side. Okay, so your biggest disappointment overall is the it's still there's just not great communication between the analytics side and the basketball side. But, you know, that sounds like my real life and the difficulties of IT folks talking to business folks in, in a normal business world. And it's very rare when you get the person, the one person who can bridge that gap in terms of explaining all these techie things to somebody who doesn't really care about that. They just want results. That's the holy grail. And uh, my former boss, David Griffin, who is now the acting general manager in Cleveland, that was his whole thing for me, I guess. He, he, that's what he saw in me, and someone who could bridge that gap between the analytics side and the basketball side. And even myself, when I went to ESPN, they asked me, who are you? And I said, well, I did this. And they said, oh, so you're a stat scout. Well, not exactly. And then I explained to myself, oh, so you're a scout. Well, not exactly. And so it's more like, oh, you're the cat guy. Not exactly. I'm the guy that knows how to bring all this together and bring these different people in the room. And uh, I want to think that there's some value for people like that in the league is, is, as a communicator, as a translator, and as someone who can take the message and massage it to best fit the audience. And that seems like it's still a position of need uh, in teams, and, and definitely it's a position of need if you're an outsider. If you're a staff guy and I want my work to be noticed by basketball people, that's something you need to learn. You need to learn how to massage the message. So that's interesting. I got a couple of things on that. First is, that is my life also. I am the guy who believes in the business. So I know how to convince people who don't care about numbers that numbers matter and these are the numbers that matter and ignore those others. So I'm really good at that. But I'll use an anecdote uh, from the, one of the great movies ever made office space, okay. uh, where where they were asking a guy, so are, are you the guy who who makes yeah. the, you know, the requirements from the members? Yeah. No, 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 no,
year after year, generation after generation, just is wrong, right? But it, I, I can't think of, I don't know if you can answer any situation where you say, oh, these guys are unequivocally always right. These guys are always unequivocally right. It's somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. We have to work together. Uh, so would you say, uh, are, there, are there staff out there that you don't get to see that actually quantify quality defensive players? Wow. It's, I'm glad you said that. So when I started, you said, what were my takeaways from the thing? I said two things. The one was when I talked about the rebounding, and then we got off on a tangent. The other thing was this uh, software title called Vantage by a company named Vantage Sports. And they've got a really interesting product. Um, this might be the best product I've seen as far as quantifying basketball, sport view data included. Uh, and basically, they have a proprietary algorithm that analyzes the video and can give you uh, immense amount of data as far as quantified data as far as all the different things that happen in a basketball game. So things that we've never been able to measure, like who sets the best screen, who sets the most screens, who, who, who creates the best scoring opportunities off the screen. Defensively, right. who can test most, who can test the best, and all types of uh, nuances to the game that, Synergy hasn't captured, and sport you can't capture, and, and all these things that we're hoping we're going to get an idea to, uh, they actually have it. And uh, I'm, I'm actually writing something for tomorrow that's going to drop uh, about the best screeners in the game uh, within a certain price range. Um, that, I think, is really exciting, and, and it is, I think, the kind of data that will better inform uh, readers, media people, coaches, players, uh, some of the things that happen on the court that we haven't measured. You know, we, we just have no... Yeah, I think that's one of the last bastions of where we are going to get bowled over by who's really good and who's not. And that's going to make GMs even that much smarter during the pre-agency period when it comes time to say, oh, hey, i got to really sign this guy. And he's good at these things, but uh, we haven't had the defensive data to prove it. Right. Well, you know, the funny thing is, uh, for those things that haven't been measured, if you're good at those things, traditionally, you're underpaid. Mm-hmm. So the funny thing is, at first, yes, the short GMs who have access to this data are going to be able to take advantage of that. Like, oh, he's really good and nobody really knows it. We'll give you $950,000. Yeah. But there's going to come a point where that data is widespread and available, and those guys' value will rise. And now, the things that you used to get for cheap are going to cost you a lot more money. So then you start to play this game of trying to figure out how important is that. But maybe we in turn drops the price on some yeah. guys who are being overpaid. Absolutely. So maybe Rudy Gaines doesn't get $19 million. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm going to leave him without so much. Yeah, I think that, that day is gone. But, but yes, you're that right. could level out the playing field. And, and that's, that's, that's the purpose of a salary cap is to take the money from one side, and it, like you're still going to spend the same amount of money, but how do I allocate it more efficiently to better things to make me a better uh, a better product on the floor? All right. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for calling in, Amin. And uh, Chris, uh, we didn't let you talk much. Do you have any other questions? I, to be honest, I am still stuck on when you started to make that transition comparison with who you are to your wife. I almost thought you were going to tell us that you were the bridge between analytics and real basketball for your wife when she starts asking you questions while the game's on TV. That's kind of where I thought no, you were no, going we with that. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, no. That's, to ask questions. 
Yeah, no, I All mean, no, I'm, I'm still a little bit in awe of Amin. I was going to go to the Sloan conference, I think two years ago and I had a conflict interest. Then last year I ended up having, uh, just not the, the means or capacity to get out there, but I'm definitely a little jealous of that, especially with Adam Silver's uh, panel, as well as a lot of the analysts and the essays and the things like that. It's, it's one of those bucket list things that I want to get out there for. So no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was one of the, the really cool things because Adam Silver, obviously the commissioner, he's like barely a month into his tenure and you get to hear him talk about his grand scheme of things and what he thinks about things. The other thing was Malcolm Gladwell really, really gave it to him. And there were no softball questions. He really went after him about the uncomfortable issues. And, you know, one of the things I chuckled about is, uh, what if David Stern was up there? He would have just annihilated it. We might have just had that ball flying everywhere. But Adam Silver, like I like to say, he's the right commissioner for where we are now in the league. David Stern was great, but I think the league has grown to the point. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you have a, uh, an overbearing parent, you're grown up now. Yeah. And now you, you need the parent to chill out. Well, Adam Silver is that more chilled out parent who can help us through the stage uh, of the game. Uh, the other thing I was going to say was, when you say it's difficult to get out there, I just found out today it's $600 for a ticket to get in. That's, that's $200 for a student. That's more than the all-star game cost. Yeah, 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 it definitely <laughs> is. That's, that's, that's pretty steep. That's pretty steep, but I don't know. I'm lucky because ESPN is a title sponsor, so we just got like a boatload of credentials to hand out to all types of writers and stuff. So I, I didn't have to worry about that. But still, I'm thinking if I'm if I'm not a student and I'm someone who's interested in this um, and I don't have any kind of corporate backing, it's, it's deep. It can be really steep. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate yeah. your uh, your analogy there of David Stern basically being that '80s '90s parent on the sitcoms. It's you know very strict, very stern, uh, for lack of a better term. And then uh, really? Adam Silver is definitely <laughs> that. He's he's that new age parent. You know, I, I think he's it's it's very intriguing. I don't know if he's going to be great, average, bad. Well, you know, time will tell that and judge that. But I'm pretty excited every time I've ever talked to Adam Silver. Very intelligent, very likable, very engaging guy. So that that was the panel that I was the most intrigued on when I looked at all the listing. There was to just hear him speak. You know, Malcolm Gladwell being there as a moderator, just listening to that guy talk and kind of getting a, an he, idea on who he, he is. Moderate. He went right at him. That's true. For sure, for sure. But no, yeah, no, I'll let you guys get out of there. I know you guys got to get out of the arena. Um, literally, these guys are at the arena right now. And uh, I, as I just threw on Twitter, uh, fractured, was it fractured? Uh, Hand yeah. there for uh, for Leandro Barbosa. So be, yeah, so he and Eric Bledsoe will be two ships passing in the night. They won't even see each other this year on the court at the same time. Doesn't sound like. Exactly. Yeah, those guys are they're basically the same person. They won't play on the court at the same time. Um but no, yeah, that's uh that's pretty much a wrap. I'll let you guys get out of there, get out of the arena, get home, enjoy some Z's, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. All right, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for me. See you guys. So again, thanks to Dave King hanging tight at the Al McCoy Media Center and a special thanks to Amin Al Hassan from ESPN.com jumping on, talking about the Sloan Sports Conference, the Phoenix Suns, tying the two together a little bit there with Mason or uh, Miles Plumley 
Mason Plumley is uh, with the Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's a wrap. That's episode fifty-three. We had a two-parter. It was pretty fun. You know, go back and listen to part one if you hadn't already. Nate Parham and I talked about the Pacific Division, the point guards, all the quality play that we're getting out of here in this division, and the playoff race as it's shaping up. A special two-part episode 53 we'll be back next week probably with something a little bit more regular but we're gearing up for the playoffs 20 23 games left in the season for most teams in the nba so starting to get hot starting to get tight suns are only a half game up on memphis as this recording is uh finishing up and you guys are listening to it so things are getting really tight out there in the western conference nine really good teams one team doesn't get to make it thanks for listening we'll be back next week tell a friend share and uh, let folks know about the phoenix suns podcast here on bright side of the sun 